Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at the usual place. And today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Naomi Janowitz, professor of religious studies at UC Davis in California, and author of many interesting works on ritual in antiquity, with a concentration on Judaism in antiquity. So, uh, Naomi, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for taking the time. Happy to be here. So... Today, we want to talk about two main things. Magic in ancient Judaism, on the one hand, and the magical Jew, on the other hand. The sort of idea of Jews as magi or as practitioners of illegal ritual acts among non-Jews in antiquity. It's these two things. But before we get into those, maybe you want to talk a little bit to set the stage about your ideas on ritual efficacy, the importance of ritual, how, we, how, we, how do we approach ritual methodologically? What's a useful way to look at this stuff? Well, we're dealing with a complicated legacy of a word like ritual. Ritual is a word that I just, if I hear people talking about it in daily life, they often use it in a fairly derogatory way. Here I am, professor of religious studies, and people are using the word ritual in all of these sort of um, pejorative negative terms as if something that's done meaninglessly, something that's done without a lot of thought, uh, and it, it's opposition to the kinds of things that people where I live in California are interested in. New, fresh, spontaneous, uh, funky, fun. You know, ritual got a bad rap through my whole life as an academic. Though the news is that that has been changing, and I've been part of that in my own academic career. Of the social construction of society is a very prominent idea that you're going to hear in people and talking about in graduate school, which has now become so powerful that everybody thinks everything is social constructed. And I always pause at that moment and think, well, if everything is socially constructed, which means that the way people go about and establish and create meaning in the world, what exactly is the mechanism for making social construction? How do we construct social construction? And then people will look at me very sheepishly, maybe look away and say, well, maybe ritual has a little role in that. Whoa, I'm happy to hear that. Maybe ritual has a role in the social construction of the reality that we live in. That's a big change because now ritual is very important. Ritual is actually where we live. We don't live in a given natural world. We live in a world that we socially construct things that we say and the things that we do. And that's ritual. The things that we do and the things that we say to make the world have meaning and have structure and have values and morals and contents so that then we live within that world. So now suddenly everybody's flipping through their dictionaries. What is ritual? Got to look that up now. I got, it turns out it's actually kind of important. Um, and of course, we had a lot of help from Judith Butler, who introduced the idea of performativity, the idea is that we use words in such a way to construct the discourse, the social discourse we live in. A day cannot go by when someone doesn't look me in the eye and say, oh, that's performativity. Now, often I'm not quite sure they know what they, they're talking about, but they have some kind of idea that the way that we use language has profound effects on the world that we live in. And therefore, if they don't like what people are saying, there's going to be a lot of questioning about negative performativity. And so the point of all of this is that we are now, near the end of my career, we're at a point in which we realize we have to rethink a lot of the ways we thought about ritual. And it's a, a kind of exciting because it's open target. Everybody can think and talk in ways. 
And we're joined by the anthropologists who are very insistent that ritual is the central social, as I say, social construction. And then they show the way in which rituals vary from culture to culture. So now if someone says, you know, what are the rituals that Jews used in the ancient world? We know we're heading right into the center of the question. How did they construct a religious cosmology, a way of thinking about the world through the rituals that they acted on? Some of those rituals are called magic. So now we have to pay attention to that. All right. So let's dive into our Jewish materials then and keeping in mind these ideas of performativity, which maybe we can we can sort of bring out in the discussion. I wonder if you could give some idea. This is a tall order, but I wonder if you could give some idea of the range, the sheer range of ritual activities that we find in Judaism in antiquity, because it's quite a huge, varied number of things that are considered magic. Or just rituals in general? I'd say rituals in general, and then let's bring magic into the conversation. Okay. Looking at this point of view that I introduced us to, the range would be profound because the range of ritual activity would be anything that's important to human beings. Right. <laughs> you know, if you want to have a political system, a way of making someone a king, you have to have a ritual for making someone a president. If you want to heal somebody, you have to have a way of healing somebody. If you want to have a set of moral values, you even there, moral values are never completely abstract. They're always enacted in different kinds of ways. Uh, you want to have a legal system, um, all the way back to the idea the first time somebody has uh, wants to sue somebody. So, in fact, you're going to find rituals that means recognizable ways of acting in almost any area that is socially responsible or important. Um, and why is that? That's because we recognize, we don't uh, even, I always use the example of a happening, but the happening is these crazy things people did in the 60s. Yeah, but even a happening had to be done in such a way as to be recognizable as a happening, right? right. So if you wanna do a happening, you have to make a happening look like a happening. You gotta so spontane- do really a ritual of spontaneity. In the exactly, a mandatory way of being spontaneous. Right, right. You must follow the mandatory laws of being spontaneous. So ritual isn't just killing an animal every so often to feed the gods. A ritual are all the recognized patterns. If you did something that was totally unique, nobody would have any idea what you were doing. <laughs> so ritual is always has some room. You can do your happening in a slightly different way. Um, maybe you're happening, you're going to add something nobody's ever had in before, but it still will be recognizable as a happening. Mm. If you do something totally unique, actually, the first thing people will ask is, what are you doing? So it's like they're 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 trying to plug you into a known ritual context by asking that question. Right. That, that is what people would do. They'd say, what's it? You know, if you're kind of, I don't know, bent over halfway like this with your leg up in the air, kind of doing this with your hands. Uh, listeners can't mm-hmm. see it, but I'm doing something very silly. People are going to go, what are you doing? And then exactly. you have to categorize it somehow. Well, I'm doing a silly one, position. Yeah, and one way of categorizing would be crazy. You're doing something crazy, okay, right? That, because it's not go. a recognizable yeah. form of behavior. Mm. So that's exactly the question of something that is it, one possibility when somebody does something that isn't recognizable is that they are just doing something crazy. So unless they happen to be doing something crazy in a recognizable way of doing something crazy. The way we talk about this is the distinction between token and type. There's a type of behavior, and each example of the ritual is a token of that type. 
there's something called a wedding and each wedding is is an example of a wedding and it has to be close enough to the example of a wedding and i know i study this because i working on a paper on weddings at Burning Man. You think Burning Man out there in the desert, these crazy activities. But you know what? Interestingly enough, those rituals, totally recognizable. When two people get married, and there's so far all weddings at Burning Man that I've seen were two people getting married, um, people walking by know, oh, that's a wedding. And they kind of wave or they smile or they run up and kiss someone. So they recognize that this behavior is a wedding. Unlike any wedding they have ever seen in their life before, but they know it's a wedding. So right. that's the basis of ritual. Okay, let's get a little more specific now. We've, we've got the broadest basis, which I love. This is a really valuable conversation, if for no other reason that it's going to get our listeners really thinking about this question of what, what is ritual. Oh my God, maybe, it's, maybe human behavior is just ritual a-go-go. Now, it's, it's often been said, it's, a bit, it's almost a cliche in the study of uh, religions, the study of magic, that magic is just someone else's religious ritual that you don't like, right? That's the definition of magic. And there's some truth in that, although it's overstated. I guess what I want to know is, what, well, what are the debates within Judaism in the ancient period about legit ritual well, action, illegitimate ritual action? I know it's a huge subject, but if you can draw some points out, it would be really helpful. Uh, certainly. I mean, if you think about what we just were talking about, since ritual actions, recognizable, repeated behavior um, in the area of religion, which means calling upon supernatural powers, mm -hmm. that's going to be a really tricky area to talk about. A lot of things are going to happen that are hard by their nature to classify. There is going to be a level of representation in ritual. That means things that stand for things. A lot of rituals will use objects that stand for divine powers. And this is going to be an area in which humans disagree. They're going to say that object does stand for a divine power or that object does not stand for a divine power. So that word really is the name of a god. That word is just nonsense. So we're always dealing with debates about representation. In other words, I see these objects or these words as being effective because they're mine. They're in my religious system. They're something that I understand. They're familiar. They're recognizable. They're real. But then I see somebody doing something that I don't understand what it stands for, or how it represents divinity, and it looks very suspicious to me. The classic example being, of course, the example that I think everybody will have heard of is the voodoo doll, right? Because the voodoo doll is super weird, super strange. That's a whole idea of voodoo. But when you go back, the word voodoo just means sacred. So it's the complexity of trying to evaluate all the things that people do in which they use objects that stand for something else. Because right. you don't necessarily have the, the God doesn't come down and heal you. Some, in some way, there's some kind of intermediary representational for the divine forces. So the rabbis were, and the example of rabbis, when say Jews in general, were surrounded by all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. So how do you classify them? How do you know which ones of these, which ones of these actions are permitted and which ones of these are not permitted? So let me just ask that in a broad question. If you were, you know, if you saw people doing things, even things that might look like they had a good result, like you saw a lot of people going around healing people, you know, how do you go about starting to classify what seemed to be, what might be suspicious. And I, I would imagine that if, you know, just generally, if I ask this question to an audience, gender comes in very quickly uh, in the ancient world because gender comes in very quickly in a lot of conversations. Right. So one of the questions will be, well, who's doing 
are these things that women are permitted to do? A lot of there's a huge intersection between discussions about magic and discussions about gender. Mm. So that's one of the things that Jews, like everybody else in the ancient world, were wondering about it. And I think that's an interesting example for us to start with because it shows you how complicated the question is going to be. It's as if you're kind of layering one on top of the other of several systems of evaluation and they're overlapping. So it's not a simple conversation. Anytime you evaluate people using supernatural powers, you may have three or four different kind of criteria that you're using at exactly the same time. And therefore, you and I could have a complicated discussion about it. Mm. So let's take let's take gender. It just turns out that I would say in general, uh, women were were allowed to have very few, very small range of efficacious powers. There, there was just a lot of suspicion about women. You see this in the ancient world in general. Mm. And I think Roma Island is wrote, written very um, so convincingly about this question. It, you see it reappearing in the Jewish material as well. That on the one hand, men need women. You need women. They're just like very necessary. And they're necessary in order to have children. And they also cook for you. But in both of those areas, there's a great deal of suspicion because it's just as possible that when they're cooking, they're going to poison you. So on the one hand, they're just really necessary. And on the other hand, there's just a lot of worries. There's just something very worrisome about them. You don't know. They're not reliable. And sure enough, look at uh, the history. Look, just read a lot of religious texts and you'll just see how incredibly unreliable women are. So that will be one of the issues. And I, it's an amazing how simply you can just set things out use of a supernatural power by a man is permissible, whereas a similar action by a woman will not be permissible. Now, are you so talking about, sorry to interrupt, are you talking about like rabbinic rulings that we find in the Talmuds where, where rabbis yes. are discussing? Yes, you find that in earlier material as well. Okay. That just, there was a lot of suspicion about women involved in rituals. Mm. Again, it's a cross-cultural question, but it, and it's not only a Jewish question. So let's say we have two grids already now we've laying out. One of them is that of course, non-Jews in general, you might you might worry a ritual done by a Jew, a ritual done by a non-Jew, and inside-outside will be one category. Right. So now you have inside-outside, and now you have man-woman. So that is also going to be another grid that you would lay on top of it. There's going to be important exceptions. So I'm going to make your, even there, you're not even halfway home figuring out, um, you know, how rituals are acceptable or not. For example... And again, I don't think you got that would, people would be too surprised. All women are not created equal, right? And I love seeing these ancient texts that talk about mothers um, who also are, again, if you think, uh, concerned as well as a pride. But um, you do find ways in which women who are familially connected to you are more likely to be permissible figures than just average women walking down the street. There's nothing worse than just running into two women you don't know at a crossroads. That's like just a really bad thing, right? Right. So because crossroads is a bad place and two women you don't know is bad. So if you see women at a crossroads, you just assume that they're doing magic. Right. On the other hand, if it's somebody you know, it's your mom and you're in the kitchen, then you're going to feel much better that what she's doing there is likely to be more permissible. And, you know, you're, you're, now you may be thinking, hey, this is not a very sophisticated way to work. But actually, this is a pretty sophisticated way to work. And if you're dealing with things as difficult to classify as supernatural power, you got to work with what you can. Yeah. And blood is thicker than water. You know, you can trust your mom. You know, you know, when she tells you something, you, you, you've got a reason to, to trust your family, right? 
I wonder if there's a concrete example from the text lying behind this uh, example of the mum in the kitchen. Do we have? Do we have? Um, well, there, there are there are healing rituals uh, or healing uh, often involving food objects that are discussed in the Talmud, where rabbis are healed by women they know giving them food objects, right. which again makes a huge amount of sense if you think about it. That's going to be that is again it's almost like from a freudian view overdetermined that there that women give are going to be in our imagination and that's what we're talking about how we imagine supernatural powers that in our imagination their women are going to be super frightening and also occasionally give us take care of us and right. be the ones who actually heal us as well so we're in a pretty complicated world now let's take another example they also there are also texts that talk about things that are not gendered um and there it seems to be just the world of, um, and this is kind of a cute world, just the, the world in which people who are specialists don't like other people who are specialists. Right. You know? And, uh, you know, all the way down to, I remember uh, I moved from one country to another and I got a haircut in my new country. And the guy said to me, that was a bad haircut you got in your old country. And I'm giving that example just because it happened to come in my head. I thought it was so amazing that he had an opinion at this level uh, that that people, the inside outside, one a sort of an international uh, specialist, I'm better at cutting hair than the other people. Now he didn't say the other hair cutter was a magician, but if we had lived in the ancient world, he might have right. in the sense that um, people who are able to use supernatural powers, and this is, what a lot of the rabbinic arguments about uh, magic are, that how is it that other people who are specialists seem to have a certain kind of power, but they just can't be good. There must be something bad there. So here it's important to realize, and I, this is an important distinction between the women case, where I think people didn't think women actually could do certain kinds of things. So sometimes it was fear of women, and sometimes it was just simply the belief that certain kinds of enactments of power was beyond women. Women couldn't make those kinds of things happen. Um, in this case, you have men who can make things happen and can do things, but they're not part of your group. They're another specialist. They're someone who might, in fact, be attacking you. They're people you have to worry about. So here, magic becomes something, the use of power by somebody you're in conflict with. Are we talking about things like curses here? Are we talking, what are we talking about concretely? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of curses just means powerful use of words against right. somebody, right? Yeah. So any time somebody who you're in competition with, who another specialist, a word, you're, uh, somebody who can use power, there's always the possibility that he's gonna feel about you the way you feel about him, yeah. which is not going to be good. So he is going to attack you. And that's why we find these stories that are written about a lot. I mean, interestingly, often when people do write about mag magic in the Talmud, where there will be a competition between someone who is considered a sorcerer and a magician and, the ra and a rabbi who both are able to do strange things, fly up in the air. But the question is, who's got the most power? Right. So who's got the most power? So that's a different, I would say, when we're talking about our different sort of ways of evaluating. This is a different scale, not the notion of magic we have today. So it's very important to say that here. I always tell my students, if you want to see what magic today is, 
go look at the yellow pages. We don't have yellow pages much anymore, but a decade ago we had yellow pages. And if you look in the yellow pages under magic, you don't find powerful people who could uh, curse you and do terrible things to you. You find child entertainment party specialists who will come to your party. That's what magic is in the discourse of America. It's in the phone book under M and it's people you get to come and do magic at your for, at your children's party. And part of the pleasure when you hire someone to do this out of the yellow pages is that you know it's made up. Right. You know that it's just fraud. But for these people in the ancient world, it's powerful and you can win or lose. So there, the contestation is much more important and it's much more dangerous. And again, it's what I'm saying, that how is it that people can use words that stand for things that are so powerful? That's, again, sort of the central question. It's like the performativity question from the ancient world. But the performativity question for them is so different from now because now i mean that our, our listeners may or may not be familiar with speech act theory and but a basic example is at the wedding at burning man the people who are going to get married actually become married when the the officiant dressed up as a giant rabbit or whatever says you are married and everyone goes woohoo and they kiss there's some moment there's some words spoken that seal the deal this is performative speech right this is a classic example of performative speech or when a judge says tonk I sentence you to life in prison. That's performative speech. That person now has to go to prison because the judge said those words. So that's modern performativity, but you have a different kind of performativity when certain words have, let's say, occult power. Words are, I mean, especially in the Hebrew tradition and especially in our period, getting into late antiquity, certain words, especially divine names, but also names of angels and stuff like this, start to have power such that it's like turning on a light switch. Like if you say that name, something big is going to happen. It has, it's just inherently powerful. And it's in the basis of the, them is exactly the same that, but neither of them are explained very well by just using the word performativity. So let's go back to your wedding example. Interestingly enough, that's not why the people are married in a wedding at Burning Man. Why is someone married at the end of the, the wedding at Burning Man? Because they've paid $60 to the state of Nevada and they got the wedding license. Okay. okay? So you, you, you don't actually have to say anything to be married there. So well, the thing that um, performativity often underestimates is how, how socially embedded the ideology of powerful language is. And it's embedded in our culture and it was embedded in the ancient culture. And it wasn't just the words themselves that are powerful. It was the ideology. So there's always a complex relationship between the speaker and the word and how it operates. That was true now and that was true then. So there is a way in which... Um, now, what, what you're pointing to is an, is an interesting point, which is that they had a somewhat different ideology around names, right? Mm-hmm. So you say divine names. And that's because they had a specific theory. Okay, and that's there will be other things in our modern culture that operate like that, but they're not names. Okay, so but that's a difference between one kind of a linguistic ideology and another. At that time, it wasn't so much that they were names, I I think it's that because the idea for the rabbinic material is that God created the world through speaking his name. So the name, therefore, was the embodiment 
of all creative speech power. And that's why the name had so much power. Interestingly enough, we have a name ideology today as well, which is pretty darn interesting, but it's different. And, the, and we have the idea that we still see a close relationship between ourselves and our names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just you and I don't have the idea that the name was what created the world. That was not, that's not part of our ideology anymore. The problem with performativity, and, I, and, I, and you saw how it happened with this, is that Austin emphasized verbs a great deal. So everybody's going around and looking for verbs in the post-Austin Butler world. Actually, performativity is not dependent upon verbs primarily, and you proved it yourself because you said that in the ancient world, performativity was around names. Mm. So I think it's an overemphasis. It was happened. The question for you is why did Austin, when he developed performativity, emphasize verbs so much? That's because he stumbled in his study of word and language, and he was and he stumbled across across these formulas like I now pronounce a man and wife, and he couldn't see them as functioning like other language. So he noticed them. So there's something about this language that draws our attention because it's self-reflective. These are verbs that tell us what they are doing. So it's like you're stumbling around and you're trying to think about language ideology. The first thing you fall over are first person verbs. If you are a linguist and you were looking and you turned the light on, and you weren't just looking at what you stumbled on, and you turned the light on in the room of language, you would say, wow, there's a lot of other things that language does that don't come from verbs. Mm-hmm. Um, in Judaism, let's say as it develops into, into what we know as rabbinic Judaism, to what degree can we say that there's ever a consensus in Jewry about what is legitimate ritual and what is forbidden ritual within in judaism yeah that that's the famous joke about the uh the jew that's found on the desert island you know that joke and they say they, he's showing everybody around the desert island and he says these are my two synagogues he says this is the one i go to and this is the one i won't set foot in and um so and i realize that's about modern but there's going to be a huge huge contestation at this time about what is permissible and what is forbidden. And I think that's very important to realize it because the system is set up in such a way that the person who masters the system is not the one who can definitively argue, but who can make the argument more complicated. That's why it says if you want to be, uh, you know, if you want to show you're a master of the system, you have to be able to declare the clean unclean. What would be the point of that? Isn't that just messing everything up? Isn't my point to separate out the clean from the unclean? Isn't my point to separate the magic from the non-magic? And it turns out, no. The point for me to show you that I really understand all the classificatory levels is to show you that I can argue, that I can declare the clean unclean and the unclean clean. Wow. Um, you know, and that's quite an amazing way to think about it, because if we already have a system in which you're doing a lot of evaluation of representation. So what you're saying is that this this word stands for something good or this word stands for something bad. This object is idle or this object is divine. Right. You see the way in which these very different ideas, uh, very different ways of evaluating it. The system then becomes one of uh, argumentation about representation. So you're at one more level removed in all of these arguments. And I think that's one reason why people have, there's still, you. Uh, I just read recently several other articles 
uh, that have come out recently on magic in this in the Talmudic material, each time trying to say, I've got it. I've got it. I figured out this is what it is in the Jerusalem Talmud. And this is what it is. And usually after you read it, you always feel like the arguments are more subtle than our attempts to understand them because it's the process. For example, there's a famous story about the making the cucumbers in the field. And everybody argues about this. It says, can you fill up a, uh, a field with cucumbers? And he says, well, it's permissible to do that because you're learning the process of filling up the field with cucumbers. So if you look at the translation of that, they added the word by magic into the English translation. So it says, can you fill up a field of cucumbers by magic? And then the question, the answer is yes, you can fill a field of cucumbers by magic because you're learning magic. You can see just how complicated the evaluation of magic is there. Because on the one hand, the word magic is not in the text, right? Right. The, the word is simply saying, and you're, you're wondering, you've never thought before, but now it turns out in that whole realm, that world of, of ritual, which we talked at the beginning about being so big, it now includes filling up a field with cucumbers. Right. Okay. Now, it's filling up a field with cucumbers in not the usual way that you and I fill fields with cucumbers. Right. right? That's the point. So if you fill up, if you fill it up in a very special way, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, that's a really interesting question. How do you feel about that? How would you feel about that as a human being to a human being? Is it a good thing or a bad thing that someone is, has just suddenly filled up a field with cucumbers? Or one could make an argument on both sides that it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. And I'm sure if we had more time, you and I could discuss the nuances of instantaneous appearance of cucumbers and why Part of us might say, this is really a good thing. And part of us might, might be thinking, well, I don't think this is such a good thing. Because again, it just is something that is about the power to build the world. And do we do you want your neighbor to have the power to fill up the, your, the field with, with cucumbers? Then this little tiny text adds even one more complicated layer because it says you can do it if you're studying it. If that isn't a wonderful point, what could be better? So anything that you think might be forbidden, and I just say to you, I'm just learning about it. So you can see in two, two sentences, an incredibly elaborate evaluation system for ritual. All kinds of questions, uh, you know, then in a week you call me up and you'll say, you filled up a field with cucumbers. One of the first things I'm going to say to you is, did you do it in order to learn it? Or were you really trying to get cucumbers? And will I even get a straight answer from you on that? Mm. What I'm saying is that it's that complicated. Why is it that complicated? Human beings are that complicated. Human being intention is that complicated. And the use of supernatural powers is that complicated. So this is the world in which we're going to live. And we're going to have to think, how do we feel about these things? Now, if you told me a woman filled that field with cucumbers, I would know right away, bad Good news. Stuff. Okay. So for our listeners who might have been delving into our little mini-series on uh, Hellenistic Judaism and thinking, gosh, this stuff gets really complicated. This has been an object lesson that you ain't seen nothing yet because when things get rabbinic, there is this, what you've referred to as the system, this incredible living 
sort of educational culture whereby people en- enter into this world of text and commentary and commentary on the commentary and commentary on the commentary, which is all seen as a kind of living practice of debate that you're constantly maneuvering within. And it's never a dead thing. It's always being interpreted by rabbis. And it's rabbis being interpreted by rabbis being interpreted by other rabbis. And it's this incredible shifting sands built on this enormous and ever-growing textual tradition. So people get ready. There's a rabbinic train a-coming and it's going to blow your mind, especially the esoteric side of it. And in terms of the debates around Judaism, around, sorry, around um, legit versus illegitimate ritual practice within Judaism, you've probably given us the best possible introduction in that you've you've made the problem explode out into such a big problem that we're never going to be able to nail it down. And maybe that is the best summary of the problem in rabbinic Judaism, right? It's a, yeah. it's an open and, and debate. It, it, it's an open debate on which there's more than one set of criteria that have to be working simultaneously, right? right? And you uh, you also had, had, we had talked about also mentioning a little bit about the question of, of seeing the Jews as both extra good at this and also seeing the Jews as suspicion. And I, I like to segue from that story into the question of the evaluation, anti-Semitism and philo-Semitism, you can see exactly why those are two sides of the same coin. On the right. one hand, if someone can fill a field up with cucumbers, that's a very good thing and it's a very bad thing. I had a babysitter who, um, once we hired her and um, she found out we were Jewish and she said, oh, Jews are good with money. Now, I wasn't sure. Would you call this philo-Semitism or anti-Semitism? <laughs> it's this two sides of the same coin that right. you see people who have some special ability are also going to be suspect because they have that ability. I have no doubt that lawyers, Jewish lawyers and Jewish doctors in America do well because people go to them because they think they're going to be better because they're Jewish doctors and Jewish lawyers. Yeah, totally. So there's a kind of philo-Semitism. And on the other hand, when the Jewish lawyer that you went to because you thought he was going to be better because he's a Jewish lawyer, and then he's not better, the anti-Semitism is the right. other side of the philo-Semitism. In- instead of saying, I got a sharp Jewish lawyer, he's going he's gonna to be able to weasel me out of anything because Jews are good at that. You then go to say, that Jewish bastard ripped me off. He took my money, exactly. he took massive fees, and then he didn't even get me out of my jail time. What a exactly. scumbag. Exactly. And that's exactly what happens in the ancient world as well. That the Jews are, on the one hand, they seem to be people who have special knowledge. You know, look, we have the Magi, Persian priests are also, so people people who just come from the East, people who live in the East just seem to be, have a special knowledge. Um, sometimes it's because you don't know very much about them, so you elevate them because you don't know very much about them. Sort of the way in which California endows Buddhists with all kinds of ideas because we don't have too many out here for a while. Right. So they seem inscrutable and super smart and super, in, in, you know, whatever. In, in the ancient world, the Jews seem to have some kind of wisdom, but it wasn't known and some kind of, so they become associated with both positive and negative things. And it's the same thing with the magicians and the people who the rabbis fought against, because on the one hand, they be, they realize these people have extra power. They, they wouldn't call themselves magicians, but the people that the rabbis are fighting with, on the one hand, they're able to do things. So you have to give them some begrudging power. They're your enemy. And those seem to be, we seem as humans not to be able to separate out the two sides of that coin. We, we, we rarely find out what people really are, which is somewhere in the middle. That's where most of the people really are. Right. But that doesn't help us a lot, esotericism 
and and magical power if it turns out that everybody's kind of just in the middle and not really so good at doing special things either way. So to get a, a little boring concrete historical context, when do we start to see a really a reception of Judaism in non-Jewish culture, let's say in Hellenic culture, for example, that shows both this sort of uh, philo-Semitic and anti-Semitic characteristic, this sort of fascination with the Jew? When does this start to show up? I would say we see it as soon as we really see them. You know, in other words, as soon as they appear as a group. Which is what? Is when do they appear as a group? Maybe the Maccabean period? Remember, it's kind of like, um, yeah, I mean, if you want to look in the Maccabean period, one of the questions would be what kind of people are saying that now, though people are arguing about when do you start to translate the Greek word eudaios, right, as Jew, as opposed to just somebody from Judea. And I think there is a good example, because if there's anybody that there's a Rorschach about, it's the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans. There's many different views of those people operating all at the same time. And there's also many different views of them operating within the Jewish community as well already, because these are the people that are able to miraculously fight off the foreign rulers. So what kinds of stories would be associated with these people would, would be potentially the same kind of miraculous stories, that these are people who are able to throw off rulers, you know, who on the one hand have a special kind of power, but who on the other hand, just because they're associated with a special kind of power, they don't seem to be like everybody else. Yeah, well, power is always, you're always going to be suspicious of people with power. Um, and if I can ask you to sort of to speculate or to give, to give a kind of overarching narrative, which is maybe not historically justifiable, or maybe you think it is, what do you think it was about the Jews? It's not, not that the Jews were the only people who had this kind of double-edged fascination applied to them. The Persian Magi, you've already mentioned, they're, they're a classic right. example. Um, the, the Egyptians are another classic example. Very powerful. They yes. have a very ancient religion. Exactly. We we're fascinated by it, but we also look down on them as as exactly. scumbags, right? But the Jews seem to have really been from then up until now <laughs> given a really really special reception by the surrounding communities in which they found themselves. What do you think it was about them in the yeah, Hellenistic I, world? I would be very hesitant. I'm and I think maybe my argument will be different than what other people would say. I'm very hesitant to ascribe some kind of essentialist explanation for the role that the Jews come to play, in part because it is shaped so much by things like Christianity and um, the rise of Christianity and the way we now read that history backwards. Right. So I think it's very difficult to try to reconstruct that without the, the later view. And the example I would give is the Samaritans. Do we think there are Samaritans today because there's something special about Samaritanism? They think so, right? But the reason why they're Samaritans today is because they got a really good advertisement in a book that's now in every hotel, was put in every bedside table, and that's the New Testament. And if you get a good advertisement in the New Testament, it doesn't matter who you really are. So I think we should be very careful. Why? Because I don't want to say, oh, yeah, between you and me, Jews really were good magicians in the ancient world. Yeah. Oh, you know, let's let's admit it. They really were good magicians. So the, the, the history of what happens to things that are ascribed, why things get ascribed to groups is very different from what the, the people actually do themselves. And much like I said, do I think do you and I think today do we want to say on the show Jews are better with money? Do we want to say that? 
No, we don't want to say that. Yeah. But yet there was a way in which historically Jews ended up playing special economic roles because of their relationship to Christianity and to Islam and money lending, being a minority. There's all kinds of reasons why Jews had a special role. Mm. But they played out very much um, because of the particular historical place they were, which was partly on the edge of the between the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic. You know, they were sort of the literally right there on the border. Mm. And, you know, if you look at the, the, the number of people who sort of passed through them on the way through these battling periods. And then the question just how they ended up. And, and here I would disagree with someone like Martin Goodman, who sees a fundamental clash between Judaism and Rome. I, I don't think there's a fundamental essence of society, no more than I think I would use those terms today, that what we're living through now in the world is a clash of civilizations. Yeah. But that some group for a contingent historical reasons, uh, where they, their cities are located, who they make historical alliances with, growth of later religious traditions like Christianity, some of the things they do end up being much more under the microscope or preserved. I mean, one of the famous people um, I wrote about, Maria the Jewess, who was an early alchemist mm. Jewish woman, who I think probably did live and did some things in the days when people were so interested in certain types of materiality that drop out in later Judaism, you know, working with dirt, literally trying to turn it into gold and all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, why do we have, why do we even know about her? Just by chance, she was preserved by later alchemical Zosimus, but we know about exactly. her from Zosimus. Yeah, exactly. So, and I, so there's something there. Now, do you want me to say Jews are good alchemists, and there's something inherently connected between Judaism and alchemy? Yes, I do. Now, you do? I do. Yeah, <laughs> just for fun. Okay. Well, that's why I'm taking. It's much more interesting if two people don't agree. <laughs> so that's why I'm taking the fairly far out in the field, non-essentializing view that. The one thing about the Jews is they carried old texts along with them in the same way the Samaritans do. In other words, the Jews are carrying along all those biblical traditions. So they have a fairly large suitcase of ideas to draw on, but it's very shaped by Christianity. And there may be other people who are living down the street who are not Jews in uh, Jerusalem who did just as funky and interesting things, and they didn't get passed to us today. Mm. I'm also reminded of... Um... Because you think, okay, the Jews obviously were important and they, you know, the, the clash of civilizations thing suggests itself because the Romans took the trouble of exterminating Jews in their thousands and destroying the temple in Jerusalem and doing, having this massive repression in Judea. But, okay, the Romans also did the, exactly the same thing to the Carthaginians a couple hundred years earlier. And we don't think of the Carthaginians as some kind of special people with a, on a special mission from God and they, they were some kind of well, clash of civilizations. We just think of them as these people that the Romans had gotten to fight with and the Romans won, and so they killed them. Yeah. You can either become a Carthaginian revisionist. Right. Okay. Or you have to see that, uh, you know, and the question of, you know, if you go back and you read Josephus, uh, the whole question of just how, uh, what was going on, you know, heaven forbid you would have been the Roman trying to figure out what to do with all these warring Jewish factions at that time. So keep in mind, it's a complex world at that time mm. um, that we oversimplify because we look at it from a much, much later when people have sifted through and organized it in a lot of ways. Yeah. And we look at 5% of the texts maybe that were around at the time. Never exactly. Mind. That Never was mind my mind. point about preser preservation. That was exactly my point, that, that Jews got preserved 
because people saw that texts were Jews and they thought, oh, this is these are smart people, let's preserve this, or whatever they had, or these are bad people, let's preserve their texts to denounce them. And there were two sides of that same coin, and they're they're inextricably connected. Naomi Janowitz, thank you very much for being on the Schwepp. And until next time, stay esoteric. <laughs>